right. Uh, I found this to be really a beautiful metaphor, a beautiful picture of um, what it is that Christ has done for us. When, if you remember from our text last week, we saw the picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in anguish. We saw the picture of Jesus in pain, Jesus even asking the Lord, please, Lord, if there is any way that this can be done another way, take this from me. Do it another way. But then Jesus ultimately concludes his prayer with, not my will, but yours be done. But we see this picture of Christ in agony, in anguish, crying, weeping, just the most distraught picture that you can imagine was kind of the picture that we were given of Jesus. And I think it'd be easy for us to conclude reading a text like that, that Jesus went to the cross, that Jesus faced God's wrath, unsure, unable to, to give any amount of confidence, that he faced the wrath of God, trembling, fearful. And I think that would be a misrepresentation of how it is that Christ went to the cross. Though Christ did cry out, to Jesus, cry out to God the Father to take it another way, to do it another way, certainly Jesus was not happy or excited about experiencing pain and anguish and taking the wrath of God. Yet at the same time, we see a picture of Jesus in our text today and going forward of a man resolved. Not just a man, but the God-man, resolved to do the task that God had ordained that he do. When Jesus took the cup of God's wrath, he was in no way trembling. He was in no way fearful. He was in no way hesitant. He said, God, this is your will. I will take it. I will do what is necessary to redeem this people. And we see in our text today a picture of this calm, this resolve coming through in Jesus' arrest. So our text, Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. Let's read today. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of of darkness. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your word, and we come to it humbly, Lord. We come to it recognizing our own weakness in our own, um, our own ability to read the text and get it wrong. Lord, guide us today as we study your word, that we would not get it wrong, but that we would see it truly and rightly and learn what you would have us to see from your word today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get into our text today, there's a lot that we can look at in this story, in this instance of Jesus in the garden. And there's a lot of background that we could go into. And in fact, there are other, uh, other accounts of this instance into the other gospels that give a lot more details. But for our purpose today, I want us to start by considering how it is that we got to this point. This is point number one, how 
did we get to this point? Specifically, I want to consider how it is that Judas got to this point. Judas, one of the 12, one who walked with Jesus, sat under his teaching, sat under his guidance, saw his miracles, was now uh, the one leading the crowd to betray Jesus. There it is. It is on. All right. We see then, as we first start reading this passage in verse 47, that actually things, for a, for a moment, if we were just reading this passage in isolation, things seem somewhat normal. The fact that there was a crowd coming after Jesus is not really something that's all that uncommon in his ministry. Crowds follow Jesus often in his ministry, though uh, not usually with swords and clubs. But the fact that one of his disciples came to give Jesus a kiss, this also would have been very normal. It would have even been customary in that time to greet Jesus with a kiss, one of his disciples. But the thought that this was all fine and normal would only be possible, would only be believable if we didn't have the knowledge that we have up to this point, right? It would only be believable if we didn't know what we already know. We know throughout this whole scene that Judas is up to no good. We know that he is out to betray Jesus, and we know this because of what Scripture has already revealed to us, because of Scripture, what Scripture has already told us. Jesus being Lord of all, God in the flesh, the one who knows what is in the heart of man, he knew far more than even we know from reading this text. He knew everything there was to know of what was going on with Judas and what was in his heart. He knew the plan God had for Judas's actions. He knew the time when Judas went out to make this terrible arrangement. He even knew what was on Judas' very heart and in his mind. He was in no way deceived or taken back when Judas came to betray him, leading this crowd. He saw right through the charade that Judas was attempting to put on. And when Judas came to greet Jesus with a kiss, as though he loved him, Jesus knew that greed was truly the motivating factor for this kiss, not love. The fact that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss is extremely significant. It was very different in that day to, uh, to kiss someone on the cheek. It was much more acceptable in that day for two men who loved each other and cared about each other to kiss one another on the cheek. It was unlike things are today. If we were to do that today, everyone would think we were weird. But in that day, Jesus... And the disciples and anyone who had an intimate, close relationship who cared for one another, especially one of, of respect from a student to a teacher or a rabbi, as Judas calls Jesus, would have been perfectly acceptable and customary to greet them with a kiss. In fact, it was a sign of love. That to greet someone with a kiss the way Judas did Jesus was the equivalent of greeting them by saying, I love you, I care about you, I respect you, and I honor you. That makes this use of a kiss to betray Jesus all the more gruesome, all the more horrific. That as Judas is giving this motion that would typically indicate love and affection, he is using it as a means of betrayal. It was all pretense. Judas was putting on a show. He was pretending to love Jesus, to be his friend, to be his follower in this act as he was betraying Jesus and turning him over to the enemy. You see, Judas foolishly believed that he could somehow maintain this facade, that he could somehow 
trick Jesus and possibly even the other disciples into thinking that he was still a good man, that he still loved and cared for Jesus, that he was somehow innocent. He thought he could trick them into thinking he was not the enemy with this kiss, with this facade. Judas, still failing to understand the Messiah that he had been following all this time. He still failed to understand who this man truly was. He actually still thought that he could somehow hold his reputation, failing to see that Jesus knows all that is in the heart of men. He thought that somehow he could get away with this, that Jesus wouldn't see it coming, that the disciples wouldn't see it coming, but that was utter foolishness based on what we already know of Jesus and what Judas ought to have known of Jesus. If you guys have, uh, there's this little game, little trick where you can like give someone a high five. I don't know if anyone ever did this when you were young where you did like the give me a high five up high to the side, down low, and then you go out too slow or something like that and you trick that person, right? And it kind of only works one time. It's only intended to work once. Well, some of you have maybe even experienced this from from Hudson uh, around the church because several weeks ago, I taught Hudson one of those little tricks. I kind of pulled it on him where you say like up high, and he gives you a high five up high, and then you say down low, gives you one down low. And then you say cut the pickle, and when he cuts the pickle, you go tickle, tickle, and you tickle him. And it's like really funny and surprising and hilarious, but it's really only hilarious that one time, right? Because after that, you know it's coming. It's not funny anymore, right? Well, I think every single time I've seen Hudson, since I showed him that trick, he's pulled the trick on me. And every single time, it's just like, oh, man, didn't see it coming. That was great. That was funny, buddy. That was hilarious. And he did it to me this morning. And it, yeah, it was still funny. Still funny. Never gets old. But in honesty, it kind of has gotten old a little bit. It's okay. He can keep doing it to me, and I'll keep laughing. But those, that's kind of the way it was with Judas, right? Where he thought that somehow he was going to pull one over on Jesus when Jesus had already indicated to Judas that he knew what was in his heart that he knew what he was going to do. In fact, he told him, whatever you have to do, go and do it quickly. Yet in his foolishness, in his brokenness, in his hardness of heart, Judas failed to see this, failed to understand even who Jesus was. Not only did Judas demonstrate his lack of knowledge of Jesus by thinking that he could deceive him in this way, but this whole deal that Judas had worked out to sell Jesus for the price of a slave demonstrates in extreme fashion just how grossly Judas undervalued the Savior. He considered Christ, and he considered 30 pieces of silver, and Judas chose the silver. Judas considered Christ and considered him to be less of value than 30 pieces of silver. He made the choice of an unbeliever. He made the choice of one who doesn't see the true beauty and the true worth of Christ. And for us who know Christ, who are are united with him, who have been had our eyes open to see and understand his worth and his value, for us, this comparison doesn't even make sense. Jesus, the God in flesh, the one who has come to save us, redeem us, drink God's wrath on our behalf, you would exchange him for 30 pieces of silver? It seems foolish to us. And yet this kind of choice is made all the time by everyone who rejects Christ, by all who reject Christ. People to this day reject Christ over tiny little things. Yes, I've learned of Christ. I've heard of what he's done. I have heard the gospel, but I do not want to let go of my sexuality. 
Yes, I know what it means to follow Christ. Yes, I've heard that he has called us to something greater. I know who he is. I've heard the story. But yet, I would have to give up the means by which I'm climbing the corporate ladder. Just fill in the blank, whatever it might be. We know that the the cost of discipleship is great. Certainly it is. But what does Paul say? The surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Savior is far more valuable. And we know this to be true, but we know this to be true only because God has revealed it to us. Only because he has opened our eyes to be able to see and understand the gospel truly and rightly. And even for those of us who do see, who do understand, who do know the value of Christ, we even in some sense fail to make this mistake oftentimes as well, don't we? We value things above what they ought to be valued, even at times above what we value Christ. And I could go through example after example, but I don't think I need to. I think everyone in here knows what I mean when we say that we as Christians even today sometimes value things above Christ. When we do that, we are living according to the flesh. We are living in a, in a shadow of the way Judas was living when he betrayed Christ. This speaks to the utter corruption that sin brings. It causes the heart to be so hard that a person considers the most insignificant of treasure that they have to be more important and more valuable than Christ and they reject him for the sake of worthless things. This happens every single day and it is the product of sin. This is how sin so corrupts us. This is how we got to this point. This is how Judas got to this point. This is the outpouring of what is in his heart as he was guided by the devil and yet as the Lord was sovereignly ordaining as we talked about a few weeks ago. So now that we have a bit of an understanding of how we got here, I want us to turn and and look at the 11 true disciples who remained with Jesus and how they reacted in this situation. Verses 49 and 50, we read this. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, this is the disciples, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. We know this one who jumped forward to cut off the servant's ear, obviously aiming for his head, was Judas. But Jesus' disciples in this situation, as Jesus is, they see what's unfolding now. They know what's happening. They see this this group that has come to arrest Jesus. They've come with their weapons. They've come armed. And they know full well what's about to happen. And for the disciples, they think, now is our time to prove ourselves. Let us take up our swords, which Jesus said to buy a sword. Let us take up our swords to defend Christ, to defend him. This is our time to shine. Jesus' disciples were genuinely wanting to be loyal. They were genuine. Their claim earlier in the chapter was no deception. It was no lie. They simply misunderstood. They simply underestimated their own weakness. And one might see their eagerness to fight, their eagerness to defend Jesus with the sword as proof of their faithfulness, as proof of their strength. And to a point it was. And yet, their response after Jesus told them to stop, after Jesus told them to put away their swords, indicates more accurately just how strong their resolve truly was, just how strong their faithfulness actually was. Because the disciples demonstrate here something that we see to be true even in our churches today. 
And that is that as one commentator says, it is easier to be a crusader than it is to be a quiet martyr. And we know this to be true. There are certain kinds of glamorous aspects of work in the church or certain kind of glamorous aspects of ministry, of service that we are naturally drawn to. Everyone likes the idea of, man, going out and doing something awesome that the world sees and that everyone knows and knows that you are a disciple of Jesus. Something that puts us out in the open in stark contrast to the world. Something that people stand back and go, wow, what, what a thing to do. But the honest truth is, the things that we are called to do and that are harder to do are the things that no one sees. The moments in quiet, the moments when we are alone, the quiet faithfulness of the mature believer. That's actually the harder thing to do than it is to go out ready to storm the gates of hell many times. These disciples were so gung-ho about defending Jesus with the sword, but the idea of suffering alongside him as a criminal and the disgrace and the, and the pain that was associated with that was more than they could take. And so they ran. Matthew in his gospel records that at this point, all the disciples left him and fled, he says. Each and every one of them gave into temptation. And this was a direct result of their failure to pray as Jesus had commanded them to pray last week. Jesus commanded them when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, stay here and pray that you may not fall into temptation. And what happened? He came back and he found them sleeping. They chose sleep over prayer. That is the harder aspect of what it means to be a mature believer. It's those times in quiet, those times when we are called to do the faithful, quiet, unseen work of building spiritual strength. And we see the result here. And the lesson is pretty, pretty clear for us, I believe, that before we run to do the glamorous and exciting aspects and work of ministry, we must commit ourselves to the quiet of prayer and faithful ministry where it goes unseen. Those are the harder things to do. In a lot of ways, it is easier for me to stand up here and preach the gospel to you than it is to go and minister to the sick in the nursing home. No one sees that. It's not as glamorous. It's not as exciting. It's more dirty. And yet, that kind of work is the kind of work that we have been called to do as believers, the harder work. The work of spending time on our hands and knees in prayer. The work of spending time reading God's word, seeking to understand it, meditating on it. That is the hard work. And we talked about that last week, and I don't want to re-preach last week's sermon. But I'm quite sure that the disciples would love it if the only portion of their story here in the last days of Jesus that were recorded was this exciting part, was this part where they drew their swords ready to defend Jesus from his captors. And I'm sure they would love for the stuff that comes after to just be left out. And yet it's not. And I believe it's not for our benefit. It's better for us that all of their deeds, the good and the bad, their failings and their moments of good are all recorded. Not only so that we might have hope when we so often fail, just like the disciples failed, but also because it makes the beauty and the greatness and the majesty of Christ stand out all the more. 
in contrast to even his own disciples, as we see in our next section. Point number three, calm compassion. In verses, verse 51, we read this of Jesus. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus, after witnessing what his disciples had done, they said, Jesus, shall we strike with the sword? And then before he even answered, Judas is on it. He's striking with the sword. And Jesus says, enough of this. Stop. No more of this. What we see in the behavior of Jesus here is a contrast to what we see from the disciples. Jesus' calm demeanor here is largely due to the time spent in prayer in the previous section. The disciples who failed to pray gave in to temptation. But Jesus, who spent the night in agony and prayer, crying out to God, had victory and calm in this situation. The disciples were told to pray that they might not enter into temptation. Instead, they slept. And we see what happened. They fell into temptation. They failed utterly during this event. And in contrast, Jesus stands victorious. And this is a model for us, as I said last week. That those who spend time in prayer with God, those who intentionally go to the Lord in prayer, are the ones who will stand when things get hard. The ones who will stand when there is chaos. Seeing Jesus here as he is arrested, it reminds me of his demeanor, of his countenance as he was on the Sea of Galilee and his disciples were terrified as the storm was raging all around them and Jesus slept in the boat. And the disciples come to Jesus and they wake him up and they say, Jesus, do you not care if we die? This storm is terrible. What are we gonna do? Jesus doesn't open his eyes and freak out and run around. Jesus calmly stands up and demonstrates who he is and says, be still. And immediately the waves were calm. That's kind of what happens in this situation. As he is being arrested and the disciples have drawn their swords and guy lost his ear and things are moving into chaos and Jesus says, enough of this. And Jesus leans down and picks up the ear of this man and heals him. Not only does Jesus demonstrate a great amount of calm in the midst of all this commotion, but he also shows great compassion even to those who stand against him. And he does this in two ways. The first way that we see this is his interaction with Judas. Though it's not recorded in Luke, Matthew tells us that when Judas came to kiss Jesus with this kiss of betrayal, Jesus greets him and calls him friend. This one who he knows full well is here to betray him and turn him over. But despite this terrible deed Judas was committing and despite the fact that he was under the controlling influence of Satan, Jesus still dealt kindly and graciously with him. If this is not a supernatural display of compassion, I don't know what is. Not only in this instance, but over and over again, even Jesus, knowing that Judas is gonna betray him when Jesus washes the disciples' feet in John, Judas is there. Jesus washes his feet, knowing full well that this man is about to betray him. Jesus demonstrates supernatural compassion upon Judas. And the second example of his compassion is the healing of the servant's ear. This man, whose name is Malchus, as we learn from the book of John, who was here with the mob to arrest Jesus, had quite an experience that night. Because first of all, this man was a bondservant or a slave. So it's questionable whether or not he even had a choice to be there. 
And yet this poor guy that Peter maims in his action, Jesus then displays his mercy upon him. That even though he is numbered among the crowd, numbered among those who are there to take Jesus to arrest him, Jesus heals him in this tense moment. This very beautiful moment is a beautiful display of Christ's grace. And what we see also from these two examples, we know the outcome of Judas was not salvation. It was not being saved. And although we don't know for sure from what the Bible has recorded about this man, Malchus, in church tradition, it's believed that this man is named in John because he actually became a Christian later on. Now, we don't know this. We don't, this is not scripture that I'm telling you right now. But I think it, it is very possible. I think it gives us, again, that contrast between Judas, who received grace, who received compassion from Jesus, and yet rejected it, and this one who received grace and received compassion, and very likely and very understandably would have received that. But then notice how Jesus exposes the chief priests and the elders in verse 52, where we read this. Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who came out against who had come out against him, "Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs?" And then he says in verse 53, "When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me." Jesus, though being treated now as a transgressor, as a criminal, he exposes these men as the true transgressors, as the true crim criminals. For they would have never sought to lay hands on Jesus all that time that he was teaching in the temple. Why? Because they feared the people. They feared what the people would do. Because they knew that they had no real evidence. They had no real purpose to arrest Jesus other than that they hated him. That was all they really had on him and they knew it. So now they have come against him in the cover of darkness to do this deed, which they know full well they have no grounds to do. If they had truly thought that Jesus was a threat, they would have arrested him much sooner in a way that was much more public. They would have been happy to publicly arrest Jesus if he had actually done something wrong. But the truth is that they knew full well that Jesus was no threat to the people, nor was Jesus a threat to the Roman government, but simply that Jesus was a threat to their own power. And therefore they hated him and arrested him. And Jesus exposes that in this statement. We see here the picture of Jesus that we are given. It stands as the picture of true faithfulness and it stands as an alternative of the two other pictures that we are given here. Because in Judas, we see a man who pretends outwardly to love Jesus. He shows affection to Jesus, but it is all fake. It is all surface level. It is not true. He shows affection, shows love to Jesus while hating him and rejecting him in his heart. And then in the disciples, we see those who, although they do genuinely love Christ, are weak and inadequate and fail in their faithfulness. And then we see the picture of Jesus standing between these two as the great and triumphant Savior who was faithful faithful to his own, even when his own are not faithful to him, and who is gracious to the sinner and patient beyond measure. That even here in this last instance, even here as Judas is doing the deed of betraying Jesus, Jesus is gracious to him. Jesus shows him compassion. 
This is a great and glorious picture of exactly the Savior that we need, the only one who could ever fulfill what God requires, and that is exactly what he is about to do. As we see in point number four, the second half of verse 53 says this rather chilling statement. Jesus says, as he concludes, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is indeed the beginning moments of what will be the darkest hour in human history. This statement from Jesus causes us pause and is striking for a few reasons, but one is because it acknowledges the fact that darkness has power. This is a sad thing for us to recognize. This is sad and and frustrating for us to hear that not only is there darkness in this world, but that the darkness has power, even power to bring about the crucifixion of the Son of God. But as we know from the whole of Scripture, the power of darkness is kept in check and is limited by God so that nothing that the darkness brings about is even an inch beyond what God has ordained. The devil is only able to go so far as God has allowed. We were reminded this of this a few weeks ago when we talked about the sifting of Peter, the sifting that Satan would put Peter through, that would put Peter through, and how it reminded us of the story of Job when we consider Job where, where the devil seeking to attack Job, seeking to afflict Job, was unable to do anything without first doing what? Coming before God and asking permission. All the power that darkness has is limited by and controlled by and under the sovereign work of God. The sovereignty of God extends even over the power of Satan. So yes, this is the hour when darkness will have its power and it will seem to drown out the light to a degree. But this is a temporary hour and it is a limited power that darkness has. Remember that this is the hour, not the age of darkness. The power of darkness is kept in check by God and according to his will. And this and many other passages in scripture cause us to see the providential control of God as so great that it extends to each and every part of creation. There is nothing that is outside of God's control. All things on, above, or below the earth are under God's control and ultimately serving his purposes. And this is proved ultimately three days later when what happens? Darkness is overthrown. Death is defeated and Jesus rises from the grave victorious. God's sovereignty is something that is so important for us as Christians to see, so necessary for the strengthening of our faith to understand, recognizing that even the devil, even darkness is not outside of God's control, but that it is sovereignly controlled by him and cannot thwart his will. And we need to recognize this because even in the church, in a lot of the language that is used and a lot of the understandings that are, that are out there and around us, there are people that that I think weaken and cheapen the sovereignty of God to the point that not that long ago, I was having a conversation with someone. We were talking about uh, this girl that he's into and she's a Christian and he's a Christian. And he was kind of saying, man, I'd like to marry this girl. And I said, marry this girl, you know? And he said, well, I want to, but you know what? 
I don't want to mess up the will of God if it's not his will for me to marry this girl. And I was so frustrated because I thought, you would recognize, and I think he would say and recognize that the power of darkness is not going to thwart God's will. Scripture is clear. But somehow we think we are so powerful, even beyond the forces of Satan, that we can thwart God's will by marrying a godly woman, right? Just at the wrong time or in the wrong place or the wrong godly woman. That's foolishness. That's foolishness. We, no more than the devil, can thwart God's will. Why? Because he is so sovereign. He is so providential that everything that happens on this earth, whether good or bad, is a part of his will and is working for his purposes and his glory. Everything. Even the darkness that is at work here to take Jesus to the cross. Even the darkness that is at work that put him in the grave. Even the the devil that is at work in the life of Judas All of it is under God's control, and all of it is ultimately defeated in Christ. Darkness had its heyday when Christ was crucified. But that moment was short-lived as Jesus was not able to be bound even by death. And yes, we still see the power of darkness in the world today, the power of evil at work in our world around us. But we know that just like darkness and death, did not prevail over Jesus, neither will darkness prevail over us. There is coming a day when Jesus will return and all suffering, all evil, all brokenness will be removed and all will be restored in him and every knee will bow down and every mouth will proclaim the glory of God. And we look forward to that day with anticipation even though we see the darkness that is at work today. But we know that joy always follows darkness. J.C. Ryle says this in his commentary on Luke. He says, after the persecution of Stephen came the conversion of Saul. After the martyrdom of John Huss came the German Reformation. After the persecution by Bloody Mary came the establishment of English Protestantism. The long night has had its morning The sharpest winters have been followed by spring. The heaviest storms have been followed by blue skies. Amen. The God that we serve is not thwarted by darkness. He is not thwarted by the power of hell or the power of Satan. In fact, he is using that for his purposes. Until that day that we look forward to the coming of Christ, we wait and we pray the way Jesus instructed his disciples to pray. And we rest in the promise that we have received and the hope that we have in Christ's resurrection. That evil does not have the last word and that it will not stand for long. Jesus has truly taken hold of the cup of God's wrath. He has taken hold of salvation in this moment and his hand is not shaking and he will finish it. Let's pray.